0: Good morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Lord, thank you that we get to gather together all across our city. Lord, I just pray that you would speak to us now. Lord, give uh, us clear understanding of your word and help us, Lord, as we hear it and uh, help it to work on our hearts and change us. In your name, amen. Well, good morning. Um, I'm Pastor John, uh, pastor at the New Life Gladstone campus. I'm so glad you're here today. Today is our last song of summer sermon Uh, we're going to be dealing with the last psalm for this summer and it's been a great set of psalms hasn't it this set of psalms that the lord in his incredible wisdom has put before us you know they were on the schedule years ago and yet they're perfect for what we need right here today So for Psalm 76, Psalm 76 has a little bit of background, so we're going to need to have some story time. So this is going to be story time with Pastor John. Um, I don't have an overcoat or a pipe and a big chair to sit in, but try to imagine if you will. Maybe Taylor can add it in in post-production. So we're going to transport ourselves back in time to ancient Israel about 3,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago. And we go back in time, and the king's name is Hezekiah. And even though Israel, Judah, is the, 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 the nation that God has you know, poured his favor out on, it's been tough times. As a matter of fact, Judah is surrounded by a king who runs this nation called the Assyrians. His name is Sennacherib, a name only a mother could love. But this, na- this, this king has been demanding money from all of the nations, including the nation of Judah. Hezekiah has paid it, as has all of the kings from all the other nations surrounding them. But this is not enough for Sennacherib. So he's decided he's going to destroy these nations. And his first one is going to be Judah. So he marches on Judah with his incredible army. This is the biggest army that has ever been amassed at this point in history in the Middle East, in this area of modern-day Israel. And they're going from town to town, fortress to fortress, destroying these cities until they get to the city of Jerusalem. Now Jerusalem at this point had walls and they were pretty high walls, they were pretty strong walls, but Sennacherib is not uh, at all um, dissuaded by this. He tells his soldiers, his mighty men, build up a a pile of rocks so I may look into this city. He gets to the top and he says, that's it? This little teeny village? I could have destroyed this with a hundred men. So his soldiers are like, let's get to it. And Senecrib goes, no, guys, you've marched a lot. Why don't we take a break? We'll just, you know, siesta a little bit. Let's sleep for the night. And then tomorrow we'll destroy this place and you all can have your fun. Now, Senecrib's key general, whose name is ridiculously long, but the first three words are, first letters are Rab. So we're going to call him Rab. The general Rab decides this is not enough. So he climbs up after Senecrib has gotten down and he starts talking trash smack to the Israelites. He says, you guys, your Hezekiah, who is this God that he serves? Has this God protected you? Has this God done anything for you? As a matter of fact, your God is so pathetic that I'm going to wager all of my 2,000 horses that tomorrow you all will be destroyed. Seems like an interesting way to take a bet. But Rab keeps going, and he keeps saying awful things, including saying, hey, Israel, if you guys, Judah, you guys, if you, if you rise up against Hezekiah, we'll let you all live. Now Hezekiah, the king, hears this, and he is just absolutely in despair. He tears his shirt to show his grief, and he calls for a full day of prayer for the Israelites. Turns out that this day, the day that they were going into, was the Passover. Traditionally, this is a time that the Israelites would get together and celebrate with festivals and joyous occasions, celebrating the deliverance of the Israelites out of Egypt through the Passover of the angel of death as it goes and kills all the firstborn of Egypt except for those who are under the blood of the Lamb. And so this Passover is supposed to be a celebration, but it's not this year. This year, it is terror and fear that the next day we are going to be destroyed. So, I'm going to leave you there because I want you to kind of feel that tension as we get into this psalm because this psalm is written in response to what happens next. So, the main idea here if you're taking notes, there's four parts God is trustworthy, God wins all of his battles, he defeats all of his enemies. He judges his enemies, and fourthly, he provides a way to make enemies into his family. He provides a way through that. So this this psalm has two parts. It has verses 1 through 6, which is looking backward at this time of the Assyrian invasion. And then we've got 7 through 12, which is looking forward to a future time, a cosmic time. And so we get this this little mini picture of the entirety of the Bible where God starts his focused attention on a people group and then there's all the interactions and the the, the man trying to destroy and so on and then spreading that out to all the people everywhere at the end of time. So it's really a, a small version. This psalm is a small version of the entirety of the Bible story. The perfect psalm to finish our summer series as we get into the fall. So our first point, God is worthy of our trust. So we see this is the God of Judah, the protector of Zion. He is a known commodity. The people in Judah know him. See, not only is God known, but it, it, it's he, he's well known. This, this idea of, you know, he uh, is... is they know him and they've experienced with him. Now, some people will say, wait a sec, that's not fair. God only made himself known in Israel. What about the guy that lives in outer Mongolia in a cave that's never heard? Well, the Bible is clear that, that God and his existence is one of the most obvious things in the universe. Paul, the Apostle Paul in Romans 1 actually explains this. He says, this is so obvious you're without, you're without excuse. Romans 1 says... For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what could be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and all the things that he has made. So they are without excuse. So they, they know it but they are not living it. They're not. So what is that? How do we get our minds around that? Well, the first line of that in verse 18, it says they suppress the knowledge of God in unrighteousness. Now that word suppress means to hold under the water. It's like taking one of those beach balls and putting it in the water and having to work to hold it down. And isn't that what we see in our culture? We see that people work really hard to to not let there be a God, whether it's to tell others or to convince themselves. So this God is known, but he's even more known in Judah. This idea of an intimate relationship. Verse 1, in Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. Verse 2, his abode has been established in Salem. That's another word for Jerusalem. His dwelling place is in Zion. Glorious are you, more majestic than the mountains full of prey. So, Right here, if you know your Bible, you go, okay, but the Bible says that God's omnipresent. He's everywhere. Omni, all, present, mean place. So he's every place. But this verse seems to contradict that. I mean, it contradicts Isaiah 66 that says, the heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What house would you build for me? There is no place that can contain me. This idea is not contradicted here. What we see is we see God's mercy Here, in that he wants to be known. This God is not some hidden God out there. He wants to be known. And so for a time, he made himself most clearly known to the Israelites because he wants to be approachable and accessible. And so that is what we see here. This is not contrary. God is still everywhere during this time, but he's made himself more clearly known through Judah, through Israel. So when when we see the Bible and we see verses we don't get, we should ask questions. What does this mean, mountains full of prey, in verse 4? That's a weird verse. Well, it's actually one of those things where it's kind of hidden in our translation, but it's a phenomenal thing once we grasp it, is that we look at verse 1, and it says Judah. Now, when you think of Judah, unless you know somebody who has that name, you might be thinking the Lion of Judah. And that's exactly what we see here, because in verse 2, the word abode is lair, as in a lion's lair. The word dwelling place is actually the word den, right? So what we see here is that this is not only God, the king, but it's God, this lion of Judah. What a cool picture. In Jeremiah 25, 39, the New Living Translation says, He has left his den. God has left his den like a strong lion seeking its prey. So this metaphor, this explanation of what God is like, Remember, we can never get our minds fully wrapped around what God is like. And so we try to come up with metaphors that all fail in one way, but they still helps us. God is a lion who's protecting his domain, his reign. He's protecting his territory. What a cool picture we see at the beginning here. Not only does this Psalm compare him to a lion, but throughout the Psalm, we learn, we, we are taught about his character. And there's four things that we see in in this. We see that God is glorious above all. Verse 3, all the most powerful weapons of the world can't touch him. He destroys them like that. Verse 4 says he's glorious, majestic. He tells the chariots and the horses. Horses and chariots were the tanks and the stealth fighters of this time period. And God says, lay down, go to sleep. And they do. And then man's wrath in verse 10, it will glorify God. The second thing we see is that God is sovereign over all. Everything is in his hands. I love what one theologian said, that there are no rogue molecules in the universe. There's nothing so small that God's not in control of it, and there's nothing so large that he's not in control of it. Both are in his hands. The third thing we see about God's character is that God is feared by all. He is awed by all. Everybody awes him. In verses 7 through 12, we see the word fear mentioned four times. And by implication, these mighty men, these valiant warriors that Sennacherib brings, there's fear there. But yet, no one can stand before God in His holiness and His glory. Every mouth is silenced. And then the last thing we see about God and how He's described in this psalm, we see Him as a just judge. It says the earth will grow still. They feared when God rises up to judge and to save. God is just. This is not an emotional outburst. Instead, it is a measured divine wrath that exposes his divine justice. God will judge and he will have the last word. So what does this mean for us? Well, God is worthy of worship. This God that we see, when we rightly see him, we're not going to be blown to and fro by the winds of this world. I mean, you've seen that. Things go from one thing is important to the other thing, to something new, to that's not important. That's our world, from one, con- one conflict, one crisis to the other, whereas God is the foundation we can stand on. So those of you that are watching that know the Lord, that have a relationship, ask yourself, do you see him as glorious? Do you see him as sovereign over all? He controls it all. He controls all of you. Do you see him as a just judge, Do you fear him? If you don't, if those are all concepts that are foreign to you, what's stopping you from digging into that? I mean, you have a Bible either on their phone or right there in front of you. And if you don't have one, we'll get you one. Study that, get into that because God has written you 66 letters explaining to you who he is. He is approachable. He wants to be known by you. He's not a mystery. And then if you're sitting here and you're listening and you're like, I, I don't, I've never heard of this God. This is, you know, something foreign to me. Maybe maybe you've been in church your whole life or you've been in Bible studies your whole life or, or maybe this is new to you and you just walked in the door and you're going, I don't really know this God. I've never heard this before. Then the question is, is what's stopping you from knowing him? I mean, it's only you in the way. So get out of the way and let the Lord work on you. I pray that that would be what we see. So our first point is that God is trustworthy. We can know God, we know him, we can trust him, he is worthy of our trust. The second point we see is that God will defeat all of his enemies. Now, like Paul Harvey used to say, this is the rest of the story. So here's what happens to the Assyrians. So remember, it's Passover night, one of the most holy nights in all of Israel's calendar, and As soon as they're done praying, before the sun goes down, Isaiah the prophet, who was alive during this time, came in and said to uh, Hezekiah, the God of Israel has heard your prayers. The king of Assyria shall not come into this city. He will not shoot any arrows into this city. As a matter of fact, he is going to turn tail and run back to his home country. God will defend and save this city. Now at that point, that looks like it could be just empty words. It is Isaiah, and you know, he's written a book of the Bible, so there's some some power there. But Isaiah is saying, God has heard you. And then that night at midnight, just like the original Passover, the angel of death shows up. And he kills 185,000 Assyrians in one night. Now this is not just every single, that's not a great army, but he kills all of the leaders and the best soldiers. So you can imagine the special forces and the generals and the commanders and all these guys, the next morning they wake up and all of those guys are dead. And they're like, well, I thought that guy was going to lead the charge. And now, you know, so Senechrib is beside himself. He's upset. So he returns home. He says, I, I can't do this. I, I, that, I don't know what Israel did last night, what kind of, you know, Israelite ninjas they had, but whatever happened, my guys are dead and, and we got to go back. So he goes back to his home country he goes back to his home city and he goes into his, his god Nisroch's temple where he offers to sacrifice both of his sons. Unbeknownst to him, his sons are in the back of the room and they hear this and his sons preemptively kill Sennacherib and Sennacherib dies. So this Passover now becomes a double festival. Instead of it just being the firstborn that is saved through the original Passover, it now becomes everybody is saved through the second Passover. One author says that this is the second most significant event in the history of Israel, the Old Testament history of Israel. See, God's people know him, but now they know him by what he's done. It's a reminder, because don't we need those reminders? Don't we need to be reminded of who God is? And that's what this psalm is bringing out. Verse 3, There he broke the flashing arrows. That means they were on fire. The shield, the sword, and the weapons of war, Selah. Now that's an interesting place for a worship, like a singing interlude. That word Selah, we don't know exactly what it means, but most people think it's some sort of musical interlude where you're to meditate on that. I don't see a lot of us today in church meditating on God destroying the weapons of people who are trying to kill us. And that's partially because... Being conquered has not been a fear for us here in America. We haven't been invaded in hundreds of years. But yet in Israel, this was a thing. And so what what he is saying, what, what this verse is saying, is it's saying God's people can be at peace. There is no threat. Meditate on that. Thank the Lord for that. So God delivers Israel. Verse 4, glorious are you, more majestic than the mountains full of prey. Verse 5, the stout-hearted were stripped of their spoil. That stout-hearted is the mighty warriors. That's what that that word means. One version says brave-hearted, which makes me think of the movie. But it's the biggest, strongest men. They sank into sleep. That means final sleep, death. And all the men of war were unable to use their hands because they were dead. So no aggressor, no matter how big, can touch God's people. Verse 6, at your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse lay stunned. Both rider and horse lay stunned. That's this, the, the rebuke word, this means a battle cry. So it's no longer just God's going to defend you, but God is also going to go after those who are there, who are attacking you. So verses four through six, it, 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 it shows us that God's people are confident in God to deliver them because they know his character which doesn't change, and his power, which never wavers, so they can be comforted in this. God can, will and can defeat every enemy of his, all the way down to their just non-existent. So when I think about that, I think about the enemy we all have. And no, it's not some, some group of people on earth today, it's not some whatever, but it is death. Death is the chief enemy that we all fear. Listen to what Paul says here. 1 Corinthians 15, But in fact Christ has risen from the dead, the firstfruits of those who've fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man also came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits; then at his coming those who belong to Christ." Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule, every authority, and every power. For he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And death is is so foreign to it. It doesn't feel right when we lose a loved one. Death is just so wrong. It's out of step with God's plan. Sin entered in and death entered in along with it. And the Apostle Paul, I think rightly, calls it an enemy because that's really the best way to explain it. Death is the enemy of everything good and beautiful about life. But when we recognize that death is a foreigner, death is the outlier, when we start seeing what God is offering us, we can start to hunger for the restoration of everything, where God comes in and death is destroyed and it is defeated and we can have life and life abundantly, everlasting life. Praise the Lord. That's the promise we have in Christ. So what does this mean for us? Well, our enemies, no matter how big or small, in view of God are tiny, right? The, 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 the size difference between our enemies, God's enemies, and God is infinite. They're not even on the same scale. You know, we, we put our trust into to God. We trust him. Every last one of his enemies is going to be destroyed. The enemies are done. It, it's just a mopping up. It's a mopping up operation. You know, VeggieTales got it right. God is bigger than the boogeyman. He's bigger than the boogeyman. It's kind of like when you, when you, you, you imagine you have the, the, some humongous landmark, the, the Empire State Building right there, and you hold up a Matchbox car right in front of your face, and you look at it, and it's like, I can't see the Empire State Building because this little car, which is right up here, is so big. When, when we start to get our, our eyes fixed rightly, the, the problems and the enemies of this world become the tiny Matchbox car compared with the hundreds of stories of the Empire State Building. And that's the same thing we see with God. When we see God rightly and we see that he conquers all enemies, we can now see the enemies are going to be destroyed by God. Now, that, that, that promise is for those who know Christ. For those who don't, you're in the crosshairs of a God who's going to destroy that's a scary place to be because you see, you may think that I'm a good person or I don't do this or I don't do that, but every time you disobey him, every time you say, I know better, you thumb your nose at him, you are just proving more and more whose side you're on. Guys, this, this is not a select club. The Christians around you, the Christians that you know, this is not a group with a special handshake that we got this special sign-up card and we got in and you didn't. That's not the way it works. Instead, and it's not even because we're super holy or we don't, we, we still mess up. But the point is, is that God came in and changed our hearts and he brought us in, sometimes kicking and screaming, into his family. And that's how you become a follower of Christ. Now, this, this enemy death, you know, we, we fear it. It's this thing that weighs on us and we hate it. But ultimately, death is turned on its ear by what Christ does on the cross. Trip Lee says, death is just a doorway to take me to my faithful lover. Death no longer has any sting. It has no victory. Death does not win. And that is the enemy that is destroyed here. So we have God is a God who's trustworthy. God is a God who is undefeated. He will never lose, and he is going to destroy all of his enemies. And then thirdly, it's not enough that he destroys them, but he's also going to judge them. And and this is what we see in verse 7 and 8 and 9. But you, you alone, are to be feared. Who can stand before you once your anger is roused? And I love that word anger. It it, it is the word nostrils, right? It's this idea that God's nostrils are flaring. He's so mad. And this to be feared, you know, some translations might say something like awesome, and ours does. Um, And and it's actually fearsome. It's like God is to be fearsome as a divine warrior. And I, I find it interesting that this divine warrior is feared, but it kind of depends on your relationship with him. You know, it, it's like Aslan in Chronicles of Narnia. His, his awesomeness, his fearsomeness, terrifies the white witch and all of her minions, right? But for the Pevensies and the good creatures, they can crawl up next to him. And he puts his paw on them, not to destroy them, but to comfort them. And so there's this incredible picture of what it looks like to be fearful of God and to be fearful of God as a believer. And now we have a much different relationship. Who can stand, it says. We see this in Revelation. For the great day of wrath has come. Who can withstand it? Revelation 6. Then verse 8. From the heavens you uttered judgment. The earth feared and was still. Now, this is an end of time, literally the end that's the future for us. But look at it. It's so certain that as the psalmist writes it, he writes it in the past tense. We call this a prophetic perfect, and we see it throughout the Bible. It's predicting the future, and the one who is predicting it, the one who has got the message from the Lord, it's so sure that it is shown in the past tense. And this fits with what we see about God. You know, God is the one who calls into existence things that do not exist. So, God rises, verse 9, to establish justice. God's victorious. We need to relax and rest in that if we are in Christ. So, for those of us that know Him, It's a place of peace for those of us who don't, whether they've been in church their whole life or this is the first time you've been there, whether you've never committed the big sins, whatever it is, the question is, is do you know this God? Is he comforting to you in his awesomeness and fearsomeness or is he terrifying? See, we all come to Christ differently. There's not one size fits all you know I grew up in the church and for many many years I just assumed I was a Christian I I made a profession of faith but there was no fruit and no growth and I just kind of just kept on keeping on and eventually the Lord came and got a hold of my heart and I understood the gospel was not this get into heaven you know by doing one thing it was a lifestyle change it was an entire change of everything but for some of you it may not be that way maybe it is a crazy life change and you go from life to death in an instant it could be calling out in the middle of the night lord save me for others it might be a slow progress and there's not that moment but whatever it is every single one of us if we're to not be in the judgment must be in christ hebrews 10 31 says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living god and God's judgment is so assured, it is more sure than the next breath I'm going to take. It's more sure than that the sun will rise tomorrow. It's more sure that gravity is going to work at the end of this sermon. It's more sure than all of that. And yet we put so much faith and hope in those things, and God's judgment is more sure than that. So if we stopped right here, this is terrible news. Hey, you all are sinners. God's going to judge you. Good luck with that. That That's not the gospel. The gospel goes a step further and says, in spite of what we've deserved, there is a Savior who took that on for us. And that's the final point we see here, that even though we are God's enemies deserving of his wrath, he provides a way for us to survive and thrive and grow through his son's death on the cross. So, All the warriors have been destroyed, they're dead, they're sleeping the sleep of death. God is victorious, he's come forth to judge the earth, and now it's time to save his own. One author writes, this is the chief aspect of justice in the Psalms, where the plight of those who cannot or will not hit back at the ruthless is a constant concern. Here the victims are the latter sort, the humble, the meek, and the oppressed. And so we see this picture of they are, they are meek, they're humble, they're humbled, which means they're saved. The Lord saves them because of the, the heart change in them. Verse 9, which I read part of before, now we'll finish it. When God arose to establish justice, justice to save all the humble of the earth. So God's just judgment is going to be salvation for his people. And the picture we get here is that the world is like dumbstruck. They're awestruck. They're going, what? What is going on here? God arises. He judges his people. He rewards them and vindicates them. You know, we grow up and we, we, we think about that judgment day. And I know as a kid, I, I was terrified of, oh, what's that going to be like And I was worried about God's wrath. And I still believed that even though I had prayed a prayer, that if I did something bad, he would punish me. right? And we we learned when we studied Job that that's not the way God works. And so if I'm in Christ, Christ's righteousness makes the day of judgment for the believer a day of vindication, where all the charges against us are removed and we are seen as if we are just like Christ. Verse 10 a very difficult verse to get our minds wrapped around, but I think we can, we can do it. The, the wrath of man shall praise you, the remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. So we see here, God gets praise out of the unjust schemes of men. So even though men are planning something to, to take out God and they're angry and they're going after him, God goes, that's nothing, but praise for me. I'm going to wear it like a belt. This ornamental belt. One... Uh, one Commentator says, the fierceness of man shall turn to thy praise. It's the idea that, you know, the last thing you want to do, us, and humanly speaking, is pick a fight with the big guy, you know. I'm playing football, and I look across, and the guy across from me is the size of a, of a large refrigerator, and I look at him and I say, your mama, this, or what, I'm, I'm in for it. Because no matter what the play is, he's going to do his best to blow me up and send me flying. And that's how we view it, right? Don't pick a fight. Don't make the big guy mad. And God goes, it doesn't matter if they're mad. The worst they can do, I will turn to praise. And I'm going to wear that as a badge of honor, as a badge of praise to me. What a cool way that God turns that around. And and we shouldn't be surprised because Colossians 2.15 says that having disarmed the powers and authorities, those who are big and whose wrath we should fear, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them at the cross. God will so dominate his enemies that he wears their wrath like a belt. So at, at this point, you know, this, this idea of this wrath being poured out, you know, that seeing God, and, and like I said, the Israelites, the Judah knows God, and so when they know Him, they know what He's like. So the question that comes to my mind, and I think some people may have this same question, is when a non-believer, those people with wrath who are so mad at God, they get brought before God, aren't they going to repent right then? And then wouldn't God just let them in? I mean, come on, you know, I've been fighting against God the whole my whole life. I was in sin. I die. I go stand before God and I go, dang, I was wrong. What if I repent right then, right? Couldn't I, couldn't, wouldn't God be gracious and merciful? I mean, we think surely they will repent. Surely they will be penitent. But yet in the book of Revelation, we don't see that. We see that the wicked are standing before God and even there, they're cursing him. They're gnashing their teeth. They're raising their fists at him saying, you should have done more, God, that you're the one that's in the wrong. And then we are told that that wrath that God pours out on them will be turned to praise. The remnant of the wrath. And God's people will be vindicated. This is like C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, where he talks about how people in hell could potentially visit heaven, but they wouldn't want to go there because the ones in hell keep turning in on themselves more and more so that they become minuscule and become less and less in hell, blaming everybody for their problems, just like they did on earth. Verse 11, Make your vows to the Lord your God and perform them. Let all around, you, around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared. So the people begin making vows to God and say, I'm going to do this. But the psalmist reminds us, it's not enough to say you're going to do it. You have to actually do it. So we are to submit to God with our mouths. We're to say, Lord, I am not God. You are God. But then we're to follow that with action. It's not enough to claim it with your mouth. You have to follow it with action. And where do we have, where do we do that? We make promises to God. We say, God, I'll, I'll do this or I'll do that. Do we actually follow through? Or do we just give it lip service? Verse 12, who cuts off the spirit of princes who is to be feared by the kings of the earth. Fear is that strange word. It's all about the relationship to the one that's being feared. right? If, if I know God, if I'm a follower, if I'm a believer, if I, if I know him as a Christian, then that fear is one of comfort because he's, My God, he's my Lion of Judah. But if I don't know him, that lion's going to eat me. That lion is going to destroy me. Being God's enemy is not the place we want to be in, but thanks be to God that he provided the means for us to not be an enemy. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, we are the Assyrians. We can't kid ourselves, for all have sinned and fall short of the the grace of God. Think of that for a minute. We do not come to Christ because we are valuable, but because we're sinful. We don't come to Christ and go, here's all the stuff I've done for you. All we bring is our sin, and he brings the salvation. We have nothing that we can bring. Not church attendance, not badges that we've earned, not Bible studies that we've attended, not any of that. What we bring is we bring our need for a Savior, and He provides the Savior. Have you had that moment where your sins break you? You realize that those pet sins that you hold on to, while not being as bad as this person, are what Christ died for? Not only that, but Christ, who we use His name so often, but think about this. The most perfect, innocent, beautiful being in history. The best person, better than the best person you've ever met. He came and died for you. Not only that, you know, we we grieve about people who we say are innocently killed. Or we grieve about people who wrongly were killed. But, you know, even in all of that, there's all this different shades of this. But we have a perfect, spotless person who was murdered in the most horrendous way possible which by itself would be a tragedy. But it's even worse because he died for you. He died for me. He was up there and that's why he went there. We are responsible. Has that hit you? Has that hit you that Christ was on the cross and the sins that you hold on to or the ones that you kind of push off to saying, oh, it's no big deal, those were the ones? Has it hit you that God did that to bridge that gap? Just like he did when he revealed himself to Israel. Just like when he revealed himself through the first Passover and then this second one, he is the one who did it. You see, Israel had forgotten. Israel had forgotten. They had amnesia. But in God's mercy, he came and told them again. This old ceremony, which they do every year. It's the Passover. We do the Passover every year. So much familiarity. They would just go through the motions until Sennacherib. This terrible situation and that year, as they were staring down face death right in the face, then it changed it. And this is to remind us of our Passover when we face certain death, because the wages of our sin is death, but the free gift of God is his eternal life in Christ Jesus. You ever wonder why God doesn't choose a different holiday? You know, there's plenty of them. There are six or seven different major feasts, plus all sorts of other holidays in the Jewish religion, in the Jewish calendar. But why would he choose Passover so many different times? Well, it's because the very first Passover explained salvation. You needed the blood of something perfect to take your place. But the Israelites forgot it. And so God, in his mercy again, brought it up again and again. And just like Israel, we need that reminder We need to remember that our salvation is not dependent on our actions, our attendance, our history, but solely on Jesus' perfect life and death because he's great and God is great. So believing in Christ and trusting in Christ is not something we do one time and that's enough. It's a daily, an hourly, every second of every day. We need to do this. Because only through seeing him rightly will we see our world rightly. But not only that, but it will allow us to know God today better than yesterday. And then the next day better than that day. And so on. You see, God has allowed us to have a glimpse of heaven right here and right now. But so often, we'd rather sit here and enjoy the, the glop that this world gives us. Making mud pies instead of going to the beach, imagining the, this vacation in a beautiful place. That's it. So instead of sitting around making these mud plies and going, well, it's just a little sin, or well, it's just I want to do this, and I don't really want to submit to God, we need to change our focus. And just like with our, 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 our we can't save ourselves, we can't change that focus, but God can. And that's where right now, whether you are a brand new believer or if you've been a believer your whole life, ask the Lord to give you a new vision of his son on that cross and a new vision of the gospel and a new vision of that so that following God and knowing God becomes your delight. It's not something that you must do or you have to do. Instead, it's what you want to do and you crave to do. If you're here and this all sounds foreign to you, it's as simple as this. Submit. Give your life to Christ. It's never too late. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you, Lord, for your gospel. Thank you for the good news that, Lord, we are no longer in our sin, but we can be in your Son. Lord, your son acts as that umbrella that, that deflects your wrath and your judgment and allows us to come up next to you and you put your paw around us and you protect us with your awesome fearsomeness. Lord, I pray that we would live that. If we, if we are someone who's been in church their whole lives and have never felt that today, Lord, I pray that you would work on the hearts of those and have this be the day. That when someone says, when did you know the Lord? How did you know the Lord? What was it like? They could say, this was the day. Lord, and I, pr- I just pray that that would be uh, the start of something big here at New Life. Lord, thank you that we can gather together and do this Via this technology and in person, we praise you for that, Lord. Thank you for your mercy on us. In your name, amen. Well, today we're going to celebrate because just like the Israelites, we need to remember. And one of the ways we do that is through communion. And as we do communion today, this is this is something that we do every single month. It is to remind us of Christ's death and resurrection until the coming of Christ again. So I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 11, and this is what it says. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Go ahead and take the bread now. Verse 25, in the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant of in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Go ahead and drink. Lord, thank you for your son's death and his life and his perfectly fulfilling the law on our behalf. Thank you, Lord, that this is not some secret club that we have to join, but Lord, it is a family that you have given us. And I pray that now as we have remembered this, that this would affect us in a new way today and tomorrow and for the remainder of our life. Thank you for being a God that is approachable. In your name, amen.